Ronald Jean Simmons was a wife-abusing, incest-having, retired United States Air Force sergeant who made his four youngest kids dig their own mass grave before shooting them on the first day of Christmas vacation. While most fathers were picking out presents at Walmart, Ronald was sidling up to the gun counter for the perfect 22 that he used to take the lives of 16 people and put four others in the hospital. In his case, the jury was just sorry they couldn't kill him twice. 20 years later, three generations of the Anderson family were shot dead in Carnation, Washington by one of their own and her boyfriend. They'll be celebrating Christmas with prison commissary Top Ramen and Twinkies for the rest of their lives. And then there's the Martin family. In 1958, the entire family of five disappeared while they were out gathering greenery to decorate the house for Christmas. Their story is still one of Oregon's most baffling unsolved mysteries. Grab some eggnog, lock your door, and settle in. Good to see you. I'm Amy, and this is True Crime Recaps. What could be more perfectly holiday-ish than a Sunday drive to cut down your very own Christmas tree in the forest? That's what Ken and Barbara Martin had in mind when they piled their three daughters, Barbara, Virginia, and Sue, into their Ford station wagon and set out on December 7th, 1958. It was in the 50s that day, unseasonably warm for Oregon, and the skies were clear perfect day to gather Christmas greenery. Just your typical American family, except this family was never heard from again. Earlier that morning, friends had stopped by to say hello and invite them to church, but the family said that they were planning to go, quote, up the highway for some Christmas greens. Neighbors saw them set out around one on that Sunday afternoon. It was Sort of an unusual thing to do, but not that strange. The family was outdoorsy and very into Christmas. Ken, the father, even made giant candy canes for everyone on their block, and their street was known as Candy Lane because of them. He even dressed up as Santa Claus and visited the neighbor kids on Christmas Eve. And the night before they vanished, he wore his Santa suit to a holiday party. It was still hanging on the back of a chair the next day. A plain Santa was second nature to him. At five foot ten and 200 pounds, he was like big, popular, jovial guy, very jolly. He managed the repair department at an appliance store. When he didn't show up for work on Monday morning, it was obvious that something terrible had happened. So whether that was an accident or a homicide is still a mystery. Right from the beginning, it was obvious that it was going to be a tough case to crack. For one thing, whatever happened to them happened between jurisdictions, and I know you know that is never a good thing. The family was last seen chowing down on burgers and fries in a cafe in Hood River, Oregon, around sunset, and a signed credit card receipt showed that Ken bought five gallons of gas at a station in Cascade Locks, Oregon. It's right near Hood River. The family lived an hour away in Portland, which is in Multnomah County. So the first responders, so to speak, were Hood River sheriffs. They spotted tire tracks that matched the family's Ford. Well, they matched a Ford, whether it was the family's or not, that's, you know, debatable. They spotted those tracks in a parking lot on a bluff overlooking the Columbia River in Cascade Locks, which is a very scenic little town in the Columbia River Gorge area. So seeing the tracks made them jump to the idea that 
It must have been an accident. Ken must have been backing up and overshot it, plunging the car 300 feet over a cliff into the river. And it should not be that easy to reverse straight into a watery death. But apparently it is. Or it was. In the days and weeks that followed, they had divers, boats, helicopters, trail riders, mountain climbers, sonar equipment, and metal detectors searching high and low for them. But there was no sign. Which is weird. So was it really an accident? Well, I mean, that's certainly the simplest theory, but does it make it true? Because one day after they disappeared, a car reported stolen from California was found in the area. Seven days after that, on December 15th, a police officer in Boise, Idaho, saw a red and white Ford station wagon with Oregon plates parked in a gravel pit off the Columbia River Highway. Two men were asleep in it. He wrote down the license plate number. He didn't like, you know, rouse them or anything. It was just strange. So he wrote down the number, but he lost it. Later, he thought it was the same as the Martin's car, but he couldn't be sure. And the car was never seen again. So was the family carjacked, killed for their car by some bad guys who ditched their California car for the Martin's station wagon? Well, the detective from Portland was convinced that, yeah, it was murder. He thought the key to solving it lay with the station wagon. Unfortunately, it was never found. And then there was the timing of their trip. The Martins lived in Portland, as I've said, and Hood River, the last place they were seen, or thereabouts, is about an hour away, but they didn't leave home until one in the afternoon. In early December, the sun starts to set at 422, and according to that detective's case files, Ken didn't like to drive at night. And paint chips found on a rock near the edge of the overlook also tracked back to the same make and model of the family station wagon. So... Wait, so maybe a a parking lot accident isn't the worst theory in the world? They did find a woman's scarf and a child's white plastic cap about 100 feet down the face of the cliff, and a couple of trees had fallen over as if, you know, they'd been hit by a car. But where was the car? There was no trace of the family's station wagon at the base of that lookout area or in the water. I remember they went over it with metal detectors, sonar. There was nothing there. The rocks, this is an important point, the rocks at the bottom of that river area, uh, they're very big, so it's not like something can easily flow through the river, not something as big as a car. It would have could have moved, but it wouldn't have gotten far. Then, that stolen car I mentioned that was abandoned in the same area, they found a bloody gun in it. It was covered with dried blood, like someone had used it to beat someone or something to death. But get this. It was turned over to the Hood River investigators, but they never processed it for evidence because they didn't think a crime had been committed. But the Multnomah County investigator traced the gun back to the Meyer and Frank department store in Portland. Here's why that's weird. As it happened, the Martin family's oldest son, Donald, used to work at that store, and he'd been suspected of stealing that gun. Not a gun like it, that gun. And at the time the family vanished, Donald was 28 and living in New York. He was stationed there um, in the Navy. And apparently he didn't have a great relationship with his family. I mean, he didn't even make the trip to Oregon to help with the search or even attend their memorial service. Was that because he had just gotten back from there? But if so, how would he have known where to meet up with his family? Because, you know, they'd done this like kind of a spur of the moment Christmas tree trip, unless they called him. 
but none of the neighbors said that they saw him that day. So it's not like he was asking around about them. So they would have had to have called him. But why would they call him and tell him what they were going to do? Unless it was just a routine Sunday call. So weird. And yet, his connection to the bloody gun is just too coincidental to be believed. Five months after they disappeared, a tugboat operator spotted 11-year-old Sue's body floating in the river a few miles upstream from Portland. Autopsy reports say she drowned. The next day, the body of her older sister, 13-year-old Virginia, was found in the river 20 miles upstream from the place where Sue was found. And after all that time in the water, they were badly decomposed, but they still had a story to tell. Virginia had a hole in her head. Was it a bullet hole, blunt force trauma, a result of a terrible accident? Who knows? That question was never answered. And their parents and older sister, 14-year-old Barbara, were never found. Neither was the family's car to this day. Now, two months after two of his sister's bodies were found, Donald came back to Portland to settle the estate. In today's money, it would have been worth a little less than $300,000. I mean, obviously, people have killed for less, but... I mean, your whole family, less than 300000 I don't know. While he was in town, he spoke to the detective and said he didn't know of anyone who would want to kill his family, but he didn't think it was an accident either. So would you say that if you had done it? Probably not. He died in 2003, and no charges were ever brought against him, of course, and no suspects were ever named. And to this day, this mystery has never been solved. So what do you think happened? Now, while you're mulling that over, let me tell you a Christmas story that does have a clear villain. His name is Ronald Gene Simmons. Not to be confused with Gene Simmons, the singer from Kiss. As far as I know, Gene Simmons from Kiss has never killed anyone. Except with his music. Yeah, I heard, it, it was stupid. I heard it. All right, enough with Kiss. Back to Ronald, who ironically probably wasn't kissed enough as a child, or he was kissed too much. Either way, he was the worst. The worst father, the worst husband, and the worst family killer in U.S. history. Ronald Gene Simmons was the kind of guy who treated his daughter like his wife, his wife like his punching bag, and his seven kids like prisoners. And then right around Christmas in 1987, he got even worse, like a psychotic version of Santa Claus, Ronald had been keeping a list and checking it twice of everybody that he thought was naughty and not so nice. On December 18th, he called up the Sinclair Mini Mart in Russellville, Arkansas and quit his job. After a year and a half of working behind the counter, he said he was sick and tired of the long hours and the low pay. Before the mini-mart, he worked in accounts receivables at Woodline Motor Freight, but he got fired or maybe was kind of like forced to quit when he wouldn't stop coming on to the 24-year-old receptionist, Kathy Kendrick. And eight years before that, he'd retired from the Air Force as a master sergeant with a medal for excellent marksmanship after 22 years in the military. So 10 days later, on Monday morning after the Christmas holidays were over, Ronald drove to Walmart and bought a 22. He already had that kind of gun in his car, but he thought he might need two to get through his entire hit list. With his gun in hand, he drove to the Peel, Eddie, and Gibbons law firm where he shot Kathy Kendrick four times in the head. She was the receptionist that had turned him down, if you remember, and filed a sexual harassment complaint against him when they both worked at Woodline Motor Freight. 
From there, his next stop was the Taylor Oil Company. His old boss from the Minimart worked there. He shot at him, but he only managed to wound him. But when another employee, Jim Chafin, ran in to see what was going on, Ronald shot and killed him. His next stop was the Sinclair Minimart, where he shot and wounded a couple of co-workers he never liked, Roberta Woolery and David Sellier. His last stop was the Woodline Motor Freight Company. His former supervisor, Joyce Butts, was the last name on his hit list, and he shot her in the head and chest, but miraculously, she survived. Then he took a worker hostage to negotiate his surrender. Her name, Vicki Jackson, was marched into an office at gunpoint and told to call the police and say these words on his behalf. I've come to do what I wanted to do. It's all over now. I've gotten everybody who wanted to hurt me. When he surrendered to Russellville police, they asked him if they should call someone in his family. He didn't say a word, but his lower lip started to quiver. Considering that he'd just gone on a citywide killing spree, their minds jumped to a horrifying conclusion. What had this madman done to his family? It took 15 minutes to get to his place in Dover, Arkansas. He owned 13 acres of isolated land that he named Mockingbird Hill, which was a really pretty name for a very ugly homestead. In the middle of the property, the family lived in two old mobile homes that had been like Frankensteined together with spare parts, literally, that he'd found to form one bigger home. But the toilets, the phone, the heat, the air conditioning... Nothing worked, so his wife and their four kids that were still living at home were forced to use an outhouse and, you know, do what they could to stay cool in the summer and warm in the winter. To get up to the house, the police had to navigate past barbed wire, no trespassing signs, and a 10-foot cinder block wall. Then they had to climb through a window to get in, and when they were finally inside, they found out what kind of psycho Ronald really was. Presents under the Christmas tree were still wrapped and spattered with blood. Piled around the kitchen table were the bodies of his 26-year-old son, Ronnie Jr., Ronnie's three-year-old daughter, Barbara. They were home for the holidays from San Antonio. (sighs) This is so, this is crazy. Ronald had shot his son and strangled his daughter when they walked in the door on December 22nd. He left them there and covered them with their coats. But on top of the kitchen table lay his 24-year-old daughter, Sheila. He'd shot and killed her when she came over on December 26th for an after-Christmas dinner with her husband, Dennis, and her two kids, Sylvia and Michael. Sheila had been ceremoniously covered with the family's one fancy tablecloth. She'd always been her father's favorite, but not in a good way. The family moved to Arkansas from New Mexico in 1981, and as a kid, Ronald's family had lived in Hector, Arkansas, in an old farmhouse without indoor plumbing, 20 miles from the nearest hint of civilization, and like he loved it. He'd always wanted to go back, but that wasn't the only reason why they moved there. The real reason they left Cloudcroft, New Mexico, was because he'd gotten his 15-year-old daughter, Sheila, pregnant. His wife, Becky, knew, and his other kids knew, but he warned them not to tell anyone. But for the first time, they didn't listen. The oldest kids and Sheila told their teachers, and they told child services, but apparently 
they weren't fast enough to swoop in because by the time they showed up at the Simmons home, they'd all packed up and skipped town. Sheila gave birth to her father's child in Arkansas, a little girl she named Sylvia Gale. A warrant was out for Ronald's arrest in New Mexico, but until he became Arkansas's worst mass murderer in history, he didn't have any kind of criminal record, so they never found him. But even before he started molesting her, Sheila was his little princess. The rest of the family had to get by on like the measly allowance he gave them for food and clothing, but he was grooming Sheila to be his daughter-wife, so she got the best of everything. Anything she wanted, she could do, except socialize with anyone outside the family. Of course, no one was allowed to have a life outside of his watchful eye. They all lived like prisoners. He scheduled meals, laundry, cleaning, everything. They never had a phone, even before they got to Arkansas. So calling anyone was out. And when his wife, Becky, did have to make a call for some reason, like, you know, go on down to the corner store or something, Ronald was always standing there watching and listening. He was even in charge of the mail. He read every letter that came in or out. And somehow, only weeks before she was murdered, his wife managed to get a letter to her 23-year-old son, Billy. In it, she wrote, he has me like a prisoner, yet I know it would be great having my children visit me anytime, having a telephone, going shopping if I want, going to church. Every time I think of freedom, I want out as soon as possible. She was shot and killed on December 22nd. She was his wife for 27 years, and he'd been beating her senseless and holding her captive for 24 of those. He threw her body in the cesspit he'd been forcing his four youngest kids to dig in the weeks leading up to Christmas. He told them they were digging a hole for another outhouse, but in actuality, it was going to be their mass grave. Later that day, when his 17-year-old daughter Loretta, his 14-year-old son Eddie, his 11-year-old girl Marianne, and 8-year-old Rebecca got home from school, he shot them as they walked in the door, and then he threw them in the cesspit with their mother. Sheila's husband, which who, of course, her father never liked, Dennis McNulty, their baby son, Michael, and Ronald's daughter slash granddaughter, Sylvia, were all murdered on December 26, along with Sheila and the rest of the family who had come for dinner. That was Ronald's second oldest son, 23-year-old Billy, his 21-year-old wife, Renata, and their 20-month-old baby, William Jr., who everyone called Trey. They were all shot to death and either thrown in the cesspit or left on the floor of the house, all except the babies. They were strangled, drowned in the rain barrel out back, put into trash bags, and hidden in the trunks of two abandoned cars on the property. It was a Christmas massacre from hell. And by December 27th, when every last person in his family was dead, Ronald started his day like any other. He drove into the Sears in Russellville and picked up some Christmas presents he had on layaway. Then he went to a bar, had a few drinks, and went home to keep drinking while he watched TV and waited for Monday morning when he continued his killing spree in town. And when the full extent of his evil was discovered, the cops asked him why he did it, but he wouldn't say. So what do you think? Some family annihilators, like Chris Watts, they kill to start a new life. Some kill to save their family from a bad life. And others, like Ronald here, kill to punish their family. He must have felt like he was losing control. His long-suffering wife was getting up her courage to leave him. His favorite daughter was married to another man. Sick. 
His sons were out of the house with families of their own, so he couldn't control them. And his four youngest kids hated him, and they would have left with their mother. So he killed them all just to teach them who was boss. As for the people unlucky enough to have worked with him, well, they wouldn't submit to him either. Kathy wanted nothing to do with him. He didn't like anyone who tried to tell him what to do. In his sick mind, they all had to die. And the state of Arkansas decided he did too. Now, normally in a case like this, I'd suggest torture followed by a firing squad, but that's what he wanted. Well, probably not the torture part, but he wanted the death penalty. In fact, he famously said that anything less than that would be cruel and unusual punishment. So for that reason alone, kind of wish that he had just suffered in prison, but he got the death penalty and he died by lethal injection on June 25th, 1990. And now he's wrapping presents for Satan in hell or, you know, something in hell. I've got one more Christmas killer for you to meet today. Well, actually two more, and they're responsible for killing three generations of a family during one horrible holiday dinner. On Christmas Eve 2007, the Andersons were getting ready for a festive family dinner. It was Wayne and Judy Anderson, their son Scott, his wife Erica, and their kids, five-year-old Olivia and three-year-old Nathan. Wayne and Judy's daughter, Michelle, and her live-in boyfriend, Joseph McEnroe, were also there. Sort of. Michelle and Joseph lived rent-free in a trailer on Wayne and Judy's property in Carnation, Washington. Now, Carnation is the quintessential small town. It's only about 45 minutes outside of Seattle, but there is a world of difference between Carnation and the big city. It's an agricultural town surrounded by forests, rivers, mountains. Only about 2,000 people live there. On this one day in 2007, their crime rate went up by 600%. Like a lot of us, it was tradition for the Andersons to get together for Christmas Eve dinner. But that year, Wayne and Judy's oldest daughter, Mary, couldn't make it. She and her youngest son were sick, so they stayed home. That flu bug saved their lives. Around 5.15 on December 24th, a 911 call came in from the Anderson house. The operator asked what the problem was, but they got no answer. But they didn't hang up either. People were yelling in the background, and the only words that she could make out were, not the kids, no. But no one was responding to her, and the call cut off after about 10 seconds. Five minutes went by, during which time the operator tried the number back twice with no answers, so she sent the police out to the address where the call was placed. The comment that went with the dispatch said, quote, heard a lot of yelling in the background, sounded more like party noise than angry, heated arguing. Which makes me wonder, what kind of parties is that 911 operator going to? The Anderson property was way out in the country, so it took about 25 minutes for police to get there. And when they showed up, the gate at the end of the driveway was closed and locked, so they turned around and left. Here's what they would have found out that day. Around 4 o'clock, Michelle and her boyfriend, Joseph, walked the 200 yards from their trailer over to her parents' house. Her mom was wrapping gifts for her grandchildren in a back room, and when the two of them walked in, she probably thought, hey, great, my daughter, here early to help with dinner, have some eggnog, just enjoy some holiday cheer. Michelle's brother, Scott, and his wife, Erica, and the kids weren't expected until about 5 o'clock, but... Her mother could not have been more wrong about her daughter's motives because minutes later, 
Michelle and her boyfriend shot and killed both her mother and father. They dragged their bodies into a shed out back to hide them. Then they wiped up the blood with towels and burned them in the fire pit in the yard. They didn't want her brother suspecting anything was different with this Christmas Eve celebration. He got to the house on time an hour later with his wife and their two little ones, five-year-old Olivia, three-year-old Nathan. Michelle shot Scott first and then Erica. Erica was shot twice, but she survived long enough to crawl over the couch to get to the phone and make that 911 call before Joseph ripped it out of her hand, took the batteries out, and broke it on the floor. She lived long enough to crawl over and hug her kids. He shot Olivia and Nathan while she held them in her arms. Two days later, on December 26, Judy didn't show up for work, and she wasn't returning her friend Linda's calls, which was completely out of character for her. So Linda stopped by the house to check on her. The gate was still closed, but there's no fence around the property. So, you know, it's just a gate, like you can go around it. The police didn't do that, but Linda did. That's when she saw the bodies through the windows. All six people had been shot. Michelle was the first person Linda suspected. And listen to what she told the 911 operator. Quote, the gate is locked, which makes me wonder if her daughter did it, which is scary because I might be up here with a murderer. Now, I don't know how things are in your family, but I wouldn't immediately suspect my friend's daughter if everyone was shot at a holiday dinner. I mean, probably not. Moving on. Let's talk about why the gate was closed in the first place. Michelle realized the 911 call went through, so she ran down the road to lock it before the police got there. Now, after the shootings, the two of them headed for Canada, but then changed their minds and turned around, thinking they would go to Oregon instead. But then they changed their minds again and went home. But by the time they got there, well, their plan was to act like, oh, I just stumbled on these bodies of my family. That was their plan. But by the time they got there, it was already a full-on crime scene. But they didn't turn around. Instead, they said they lived there and they were trying to get past the police tape at the gate. But they were suspected right away for a lot of obvious reasons, but specifically because neither one of them was acting at all curious or concerned about why the police were there. And when they were questioned, they admitted it pretty quickly. Michelle even said, yes, it was premeditated. And yes, I was fed up with everything. I'm tired of everybody stepping on me. According to her, they'd been planning it for two weeks, which is just so mind boggling. How do you plan to kill your whole family, including your little niece and nephew? Well, you won't believe their reasoning because Wayne and Judy expected her a 29-year-old woman and her boyfriend, to pay them rent. They'd been living there for the last year. Scott Free showed no signs of stepping up or striking out on their own. Talk about entitled. Michelle thought that they owed her money. They owed her the trailer. They owed her, you know, everything that they were giving her. She never held down a job for long. At least Joseph once worked at Target. The two had met online six years before all this. He was living in Arizona and he moved up to Washington to move in with her, which meant now her parents are helping them both out. But their generosity was starting to wear a little thin. They thought more of a tough love approach might get Michelle to grow up a little, but it had the opposite effect. She had a tantrum, a deadly one. And it wasn't the first time her family saw Michelle fly into a rage. 
she didn't like people, according to her sister, especially not women, and especially, especially not her brother's wife, Erica. Michelle always had to be the center of attention, and she's growing up, and she's very close to Scott. But when he meets Erica in high school and later marries her, Michelle blames Erica for driving a wedge between them. That kind of thinking was typical of her. She thought the whole world was against her, and she flew into a rage anytime she didn't get what she wanted. And in 2007, she decided not only did her parents owe her money and you know, a house and everything else, but that her brother owed her money and her parents were siding with him against her. So in her mind, it was their fault that she had to kill them. (laughs) I mean, they weren't rich people, but they were comfortable. Her father was an engineer with Boeing and her mother worked at the post office and they killed the kids because they didn't want them to turn them in. And she thought that they would be traumatized after seeing them kill their parents. As for why the police didn't just go around the gate and check on the house that day, well, according to the Seattle Times interview with King County PD, officers make decisions to, you know, go to the house and take additional actions on a case-by-case basis. Basically, if someone's screaming or if they see something, they go in or they would have gone up to the house. But the house was at the end of a long dirt road and they couldn't see it from the gate. So even if something was happening, they wouldn't have been able to see it. So it doesn't really, but all right. They didn't hear anything either, of course, because by the time they got there, everything was quiet because the whole family had already been slaughtered. So to be fair, even if they had pursued it a little more, they wouldn't have been able to save anyone. But Michelle and Joseph would have been arrested right then and there instead of a few days later. So what happened to those two monsters? Well, the death penalty was discussed, but in the end, they got life in prison without parole. But get this, while she was waiting for trial, Michelle asked the court for a TV in her cell, an extra yard time. So clearly, once a spoiled brat, always a spoiled brat, or a spoiled killer, to be more accurate. And that's your recap. If you're going to be with family this holiday season, remember, hug them tight. Well, also, you know, being aware of your surroundings. If you like getting all the crime in half the time, it would mean so much to us if you would subscribe and give this show a five-star review. It only takes a minute, but it means the world to us. Thanks again for spending your time with me today. Chris and I are here with new recaps every week. So until next time, take care.